You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. And they're waiting. They're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. No one will hear you scream! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. And it is always a pleasure to be here, especially to talk about a movie as interesting as Messiah of Evil. Also joining me this week is Mr. Bill Ackerman. It's great to be back, and I'm glad to be talking Wagner with you tonight. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we're looking at Willard Hike's 1973 film, Messiah of Evil, co-written by Hike and writing partner slash spouse Gloria Katz. The film is an atmospheric tale of a woman, Arletti, played by Mariana Hill, who goes to the coast looking for her artist father. What she finds there will chill you to the bone. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this film, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen Messiah of Evil. We will still be here. Oh, and let me tell you, do not watch the version that is on Amazon Prime. It looks like garbage. There are much better versions out there. Just want to put that out there. So, Maitland, I'm always curious to ask, when was the first time you saw Messiah of Evil, and what did you think? I first saw Messiah of Evil in the early 80s, which was clearly after it was made, but relatively early in the game. And I just thought, okay, what did I just see? The atmosphere of that film, first of all, was so incredibly Lovecraftian for what was clearly not a Lovecraft story that it absolutely boggled my mind. And it had some set pieces in it that I think we're going to be discussing because you can't talk about this movie without talking about them that were absolutely perfect. The kind of thing that you expect to see in a movie that you've heard of everywhere, that you've read about in every book that about horror you've ever read. And yet I had never read about Messiah of Evil in any of those classic histories of the horror film. So it was it was a great surprise to me and a movie that I've just kept revisiting over and over whenever I have the opportunity. How about you, Bill? I think the first time I saw it was in the late 90s. A friend of mine had a copy of the Video Gems VHS release of it. And he had lent it to me, uh, telling me that it was a masterpiece. That was the word he used. And I had never heard of it. And it had, you know, n- nothing about the packaging suggested, you know, masterpiece. It, and like Maitland said, it was not a, it was not a film you would see in books. It was not a film that was like really part of the conversation of great horror films. So I watched it with real, you know, low expectations and it completely blew me away. I think it was seeing the, uh, the color palette and the, uh, the eerie dreaminess. Like it felt like what I liked about Italian horror films. Um, like I'm thinking of Bava or Argento. It felt like that kind of approach, but to an Americana setting. And it had a little bit of the dark strangeness I associate with later filmmakers like David Lynch. So right away I was, uh, really impressed with it. And, you know, th- this was still like in the, um, 
the version when you're warning people about the uh, the crummy versions that circulate on places like YouTube or even Amazon Prime. I mean, this was kind of all we had back then. I mean, that was a pan and scan transfer. Um, and even even seeing it in a compromised version, you could still see just how beautiful looking it was, how well composed it was, even with compromised uh, imagery. I didn't even see it in widescreen until Exhumed Films brought it to Philadelphia in, I think, 2008, uh, before Code Red put it out on DVD and then later Blu-ray. So um, I've I enjoyed it when it looked terrible, and I love it even more now that it looks, you know, finally decent. Uh, and I think um, if if people are listening to this and go on YouTube, there's a version that uh, is identified uh, mis- mistakenly labeled as Italian NHD, which is two lies in one description. But that version is uh, <laughs> that version is the best out there streaming for those that are curious. Did you compare that against the archive.org? Because I know there were like a few versions on archive.org at the moment. I couldn't find which one uh, was widescreen that was the entire film. So maybe there's an, maybe there was one on there too, but I, I just know the one on YouTube is pretty close, but only the one that is uh, the Italian film. <laughs> Fragile. It must be Italian. Maitland, I'm very curious. When you saw this, did it have music in the beginning? Was there a wonderful folk-type ballad that played over the murder of Walter Hill? Absolutely not. I mean, there were lots of things that it did not have, including it did not have the widescreen format because I was watching it on television in a not particularly good version. And it certainly didn't have the incredible visual richness that you saw if you saw it in later versions. So it was very compromised. And yet it was still utterly compelling and that that really is the sign of a great film when you can see it in the worst possible version of itself and still say holy moly that is a great movie and i want to see a better version no i totally agree there are a lot of films out there that i enjoy and i've only seen the crappy versions of i've never seen the cleaned up version and so when i'll finally sit down and watch something that has been properly transferred and upgraded and all these things restored and it, it just feels like a completely different movie so when i was trying to rewatch this last night and saw that horrible version i was like oh my god this doesn't look like the movie i remember yes i'm compelled to watch it a little bit but i think i remember seeing a better version one thing that cracks me up i grew up with the version that had that ron mckinnon sung ballad uh hold on to love or whatever it's called that that uh, opens the uh the the uh, earlier version and uh, she has a comment on youtube on one of the uploads that has her credited as the song and it was asking not to be credited as the writer of that song because it was a work for hire demo she did in the 60s she has no knowledge of messiah evil or how it got involved with the film but maybe we'll talk about this the post production of this film was completed without the filmmaker's involvement so all of the music is uh not what was intended by the filmmakers. Though I have to say some of the music in this is really effective. There are certain parts in here where I actually wrote down like this music really works for this scene. But yeah, going back and watching that opening with that folk ballad on there, I was like, what the hell is this? Who decided to do this? Yeah. It's I- extraordinary what bad decisions people can make about films of this kind, films that they feel are, are just marginal and don't matter. So you just get whatever you got lying around and slap it onto it somehow and figure, well, hey, maybe this will make it. It, it, it really is like I'm going to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And with a film like Messiah of Evil, 
it's really hard to imagine anybody looking at it in any version and thinking, this movie is crap. This is worthless. So we're just going to bang it out in some form and shove it in theaters. And there's always going to be an audience that will come and see whatever opens in whatever the local grindhouse area is and we'll make some money and Hey, everybody's happy. It's, it's astonishing to me that anybody in the business of filmmaking could look at a movie like this and not see how it differs from all kinds of films. I'm sure all of us could name that. Yeah, we saw them because they were horror movies and they were playing at a local theater and we came out thinking, wow, well, (laughs) okay. I saw it. That's about the best thing I can say about it. You know, it's almost kind of a miracle. It even survives in the version that we have, because from what I understand, they, they ran out of money before even finishing the film they were trying to make. And so some of the ambiguity of it wasn't really their original concept, but, and it, and the music, which I love as well, you know, wasn't their, you know, original idea. I think they temp scored it with Bernard Herman music. So, so they were probably aiming for something a little bit more conventional than what we have, but uh, it's kind of, it's kind of nice that we have the version that we do because there's really nothing quite like it. I mean, even, you know, I, I don't know what, what the original idea would have been, but what we have is, is so mysterious because of those things that they couldn't, you know, solve. They had to solve what they had in the cutting room. I mentioned Walter Hill, and Walter Hill is an actor in this one, not a director. And this comes from that wonderful period that I've discussed in the show before, where there was just this community of filmmakers, writers, uh, directors, producers who are all uh, going to school together, almost competing against one another. You know, I talked about this on uh, Apocalypse Now, our episode, especially on Star Wars. We talked about it on More American Graffiti. And this is almost a sequel episode to uh, American, more American graffiti because we have uh, Willard Hayek on that one, and uh, Bill Norton actually has a, a ro- small role in this movie. And like I said, this is that that wonderful time where you've got uh, Spielberg and, and and mostly uh, Lucas and Coppola and Hayek and Katz and De Palma and uh, Hill, and they're all just kind of in this melting pot. And there's even more names on top of that, and it's just this uh, terrific uh, out outpouring of creativity and that uh hike and cats uh worked on this together and made this together is just it's so unusual and so different than anything else that you're going to see in the in their filmography and it's just like i kind of wish that they had been able to continue making horror films if they're going to be able to do something like this you're right It, it, it is an incredible period because there were a lot of people and a lot of people who were film school educated which was still a relatively new thing. I mean, most filmmakers of the generation prior to these guys didn't go to film school. They learned how to make movies by going to work as cutters, to work in the lowest, most menial jobs that you could do in filmmaking. If you were a cutter, you were actually way up the the ladder there and learned about filmmaking as a kind of apprenticeship. And these film school, either film school educated or people who were reading a lot about film, who were reading film magazines, who were reading film theory and thinking about movies in a different way, really did come together, work together a lot because they were all about the same age, didn't have a lot of money, by and large didn't have any kind of studio connections that could help them get into the system. 
and made some incredibly interesting movies, and in some cases, movies that influenced entire generations. So I think Messiah of Evil has to be looked at as part of that kind of filmmaking and the product of those kind of experiences and those kind of filmmakers who were just really eager to work on movies. And people like Walter Hill, who obviously said to whoever asked him, yeah, sure, I'll be in your movie. I'll, I'll be a victim. <laughs> That's fine. That's great. Hey, we're making a movie here. What's interesting about this one, too, is that, I mean, sometimes you hear the complaint with horror films from genre fans that, uh, you know, that they're coming for, like the, the makers of a horror film aren't horror fans themselves. Um, like they don't understand the genre, you know, maybe it's the complaint that a, you know, a horror buff might have about people from outside their, their, you know, their subculture making a horror film. But what's interesting about Messiah of Evil is that, uh, you know, Gloria Katz and, and Willard Hike weren't horror movie fans, but they had this real cinephile love of, uh, uh, Antonioni and, uh, Godard and Truffaut and these influences like pop art influences like Ed Ruscha. Um, like they're drawing from Pierrot LeFou. They're drawing from Yates. I mean, they're, they're drawing from Lovecraft, but they're drawing from a lot of, th- and they're drawing from Hitchcock, but they're drawing from a lot of things that you don't normally see informing uh american horror films then or now so i think that that's like those efforts on their part to maybe elevate what they see as you know a, a, a way into making movies maybe not a genre they want to stay in forever but if they're going to make a horror film they're going to make the most interesting one you know that they can and i think that you know you have people like jack fisk you have all these people on the production side that you know are real are real crafts craftsmen you know that that I think that just that combination of influences that are pretty far outside the genre, that helps give it a strangeness uh, because they're all still kind of learning how to make Antonio, <laughs> Antonioni movies, you know, in, in California. So there's, you know, that there's like a, like a likable, I don't want to say amateurish quality, but like, the, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of like learning their craft. Like this is one step above student film for them. And a lot of the people involved, I think, might have been part of the student film world that, you know, Cats and Hike, you know, came from. But I mean, it's, 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 it's great in a way because, yeah, it does bring in all those different colors, you know, to, uh, to the equation. And I think that's one of the reasons that you look at this movie and you say, wow, that really doesn't look like the kind of stuff that people were doing then, by and large. It clearly does come from a, a different sensibility, a sensibility, a set of sensibilities rather than a sensibility uh, that combine an enormous number of influences that were not necessarily the influences that many people who loved horror then had. You don't see a lot of the universal horror influence here and not just because it's not in black and white and yet it is stylized in a way that you could compare to a lot of universal films with their amazing use of studio sets which of course is not what you're seeing here it has a sense of the eerie and the uncanny that definitely owes a lot to lovecraft but also owes to poe in a big way and not the poe of the vincent price Corman Poe films, so much more poetic side of Poe, a remarkable confluence, I think, of sensibilities and of backgrounds and of literary and filmic influences that really make it distinctive. And it it is so distinctive. You can't look at, at Messiah of Evil 
and say, oh, well, that's just like, and name a half dozen other films that were made around the same time, because it's just not just like most films that were being made at that time, or for that matter, most horror films, period. It's a very distinctive piece of filmmaking. I think one of the things that plays very well in here as as well is the idea of you know cinema povera. This is a very poor film. Like they can't afford to show that many things, so they have to use the atmosphere. And I think that that works so well with something like this because it keeps it super spooky and really just keeps you on your toes. There's a, a moment pretty early on in the film after this opening with, with Walter Hill, where we don't know what he's running from. We don't know why this little girl murders him, slits his throat, but there's a moment very soon after that, after the opening credits where we've got uh, uh, our main uh, female character, Arlette going to this gas station and the guy that comes out and just starts shooting at something off screen. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure what he's shooting at. And I wonder what it looks like, but we'll never see it. But we do get those great uh, sound effects of the dogs and or wolves going on. Absolutely. It's such a great eerie scene. And part of that is because of course it's in the most conventional setting you can imagine. It's a gas station. I mean, yeah, what is a more commonplace thing than a gas station? You pull in there, you gas up your car, you pay some guy, whether you put the money in his hand or you stick it through a slot because he's hiding behind bulletproof, you know, whatever. And then you drive your car off to wherever you're going. It's so mundane, and yet it's imbued with such an incredible eeriness. It feels like some strange place that's floating out of time and out of space. And our introduction to Arlette also helps with that because we're just getting what I, I mean, it could be any woman, it could be a man in drag. We don't even know. We don't even see her very clearly in that hallway when we first see her and we get that opening voiceover from her. And it just, again, the use of the voiceover and not seeing her mouth move, she could be telling this to us right now if as we're watching this or it could be at a future time we don't know and that also helps play with this it, it saves on money because we don't have to do sync sound in this place but it also gives it that creepiness but just before i forget just one thing i wanted to say about the gas station was that they chose it because of its resemblance to the standard station paintings of ed Rocher. Um and the influence of pop art i think is one of the most interesting things about the look of messiah of evil i mean they choose uh, all these kind of mundane settings, mundane objects, uh, kitschy kind of logos. Um, they get this heightened presentation. And it's interesting to note that Joseph Lang, the father, is a pop artist. Um, and so, like, the paintings that uh, Joan Mosin does that kind of make the house an eerie character, uh, which gives all of these scenes of them just hanging out, like this edge so you're always you know the characters are always being observed by figures you know in the in the in the shadows you know it's all kind of tied together i mean you know we can talk about things like the blue paint is when we get to it but i mean the the art influence is something i never really even thought of initially when i was watching it but you know, over the years kind of going back to it like that's that jumps out more and more especially seeing it in widescreen since you mentioned the the opening with the voiceover, I did want to just draw a comparison to Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which would have come out right around the time that they shot this. And they say that 
it wasn't an influence at all on Messiah of Evil, and I, I take them at their word, but there's a lot in common uh, in the way that it's structured, uh, where the events are the account of a traumatized survivor, you know, which kind of allows for, you know, a realistic interpretation of the story. Like all of the supernatural or uncanny events could be uh, explained as details that are coming from the ravings of an institutionalized person. You could, you could take it as a realistic story of a breakdown if you didn't want to allow for a supernatural story. But, you know, it, you have the fun of, you know, proper horror movie with zombies and monsters and such. But, you know, it, it plays, you know, in that kind of, kind of post-Rosemary's Baby, like, well, it could all be a rational thing as well. I completely agree with you. I I mean, you look at this movie and it absolutely does have the look of some deeply traumatized person's recollection of things that you can imagine actually were not as bizarre as they appear to be, but are being filtered through a sensibility that is profoundly out of whack so that the most ordinary things in the world suddenly appear menacing or appear bizarre or appear not part of the the normal world. And yet, well, they are. They're, they're things like a mobile station. Yeah, that, that's completely ordinary. And yet you're very aware that there's a perspective that's presenting that material to you. So it makes you question the narrator, whoever the narrator might be, it gives the, it, it destabilizes the narrative. And that's something that always unsettles one as a viewer and helps, I think, contribute to the overall atmosphere of the film. You never really know where your footing is and you never really know exactly how you're supposed to take certain things you're seeing. Whether they are delusions, whether they are things that definitely happened, whether you're supposed to be questioning that at all, it's a really fascinating viewing experience and really sophisticated. I want to talk about the title real quick, because this movie had several titles over the years, but Messiah of Evil is the perfect title for this. And it's another one of those that keeps you on your toes because really until you get very deep in the movie, you don't necessarily know what the heck Messiah of evil might even mean though. They give us clues pretty early in the film by this whole idea of the town that she's going to once being called Bethlehem. And now it's being called point doom though point dune d-u-n-e though every time she says it i keep thinking she's saying doom which i think is very intentional that the two words sound so similar and that they're using them so freely yeah well point doom is a um is an actual beach in malibu i think and i think point dune is a play on that uh which is interesting because doom sounds eerier so i don't know why they made that choice other than maybe they didn't want it to be taken as literally point doom but I think they might even use that. I, I don't know if that's actually one of the locations of it. But yeah, I, it, the title, I mean, I think they shot it. I think the original title was Blood Virgin, which, you know, I, for all, you know, I, I don't, I know Messiah of Evil even gets uh, put in on a marquee in Annie Hall, along with House of Exorcism, like as a, uh, as a sign of the decline of LA or something in, in Annie Hall. I, so I know that that title you know, doesn't play well for, you know, non-horror audiences, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I think this went out as Dead People. It went out, um, I think they shot it under the title The Second Coming. And I, I did want to bring that up a little later. But the, um, um, yeah, no, Messiah of Evil, yeah, until until we get to the story of The the Dark Stranger, it is a little bit, un, you know, clear where that title is coming from as well. 
and I actually think I saw it as Dead People, which is just a terrible, terrible title. It, it's, <laughs> it, it, you don't get what you expect from it. It's stupid. It pretty much sounds like a zombie movie. And although I suppose that there are certain parts of this movie that you could certainly describe as owing something to zombie iconography and I guess even zombie mythology. This is not a zombie movie. This is not about shambling dead people. So that was a particularly ghastly title that set up all the wrong expectations. Not that it stopped me seeing it, of course, because that's the kind of horror movie viewer I was and to some degree still am, but I certainly was then. I would see anything that looked as though it were a horror movie by any definition of that term. What do you guys think about the albino trucker? Because I think that the albino trucker is probably my favorite character in this entire movie, and I just kind of wish that there had been more of him. But they give me enough and just, you know, they, they tease me with it because I keep wanting more, but it's good that way. I like him. I think he, he reminds me a little bit of the casting of Michael Berryman in The Hills Have Eyes. I think there is a case where they're, they're taking a, a, a person's real life you know, physical attributes and making them into a, a horror movie kind of uh, effect. Um, I mean, even the, uh, the rapid eye movement that you notice in one shot, like that's something that his eyes really did do. That isn't him trying to be scary. From what I understand, they, they found him in line in an unemployment office. Like it wasn't like they put out a casting for that guy, but, uh, his use almost reminds me of, um, Pinhead in the original Hellraiser. Like he's not really the, he's not really the main villain. He's just, you know, got a presence that is so powerful that he becomes kind of like the, uh, like the totem of the film. Like, you know, he's, he's the fan favorite. Like, had they made a sequel, I'm sure he would have played a more prominent role in that. But, you know, I, I do like him, uh, as a, uh, I, I wonder because they, I think they've talked about wanting an albino specifically for that character. And he drives up in a very red truck. And I, I was reminded of, um, I don't know if I'm misremembering it, like that, uh, Godard had chosen a, a particularly white area of beach to shoot the ending of Pirola Fu because it would make the blues and reds pop a little bit more in his film. And I wonder if, I, I don't know if this was the kind of logic they had that like casting somebody that was an albino would like make other colors in their color scheme somehow uh, resonate in a different way on film. I don't, I don't know if they thought it through that way, but I know that they did look for an albino specifically for the role of the trucker. And again, he just adds to that sense of a little bit of dislocation. Uh, he, he's not a freak. He's not a monster of any kind. But he is somebody that whom, if you saw him on the street, you would look at him. And, and you would probably hear your mother's voice saying, you don't stare at people who look different. That's rude. And yet you would be unable to not look at him and feel as though, well, that guy's unusual. And then you can go a lot of places from there. And so it, it contributes to that sense of the, the uncanny or the unheimlich, as Freud called it, that it's just something that's a little bit off kilter and a little bit not what you expect to see that throws you. I kind of wonder if he's almost like a Renfield character, especially when he is eating the mice and he seems to be shepherding, clearing the way, ridding the world maybe a little bit for the return of the Dark Lord. 
it just feels like he is there to do that bidding, maybe not directly, but it feels like he's really helping out, especially he's helping out the people of the town who want to stare at the moon when he's driving around in the truck and he's got those people in the back who are just staring up at the sky. And the first time I ever saw that image, I thought all those people's necks were slashed because he's got the dead people in the vehicle earlier and including possibly Walter Hill with his neck slashed and the one guy with no eyeballs. And I'm just like, wow, he just drives around with dead people in his truck all the time. That's great. But then it took me a while to realize, no, they're just really entranced by the moon and just all staring up at it. And his job basically is to drive around with his people and eat mice. And, you know, I, I did have the same reaction when I first saw it. I, I completely assumed that those people were dead and that they were just more dead people being hauled around in that truck. So, it, it, again, it was one of those destabilizing things because I realized, oh, wait, actually, they're not dead. They, they are gazing into the sky. So, yeah, it, it's very effective. At the beginning with the gas station attendant observes them in the truck and doesn't really react the way you think he would. I mean, that's our first clue that the behavior is not going to be entirely naturalistic in this story. Is that before or after he goes out shooting at whatever that is? <laughs> he reminds me of that guy with all the rabbits in his truck and uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing that I really like about this movie is that they play with voiceover so much. And I talked about at the beginning that she is going to this town, going to Point Doom, to find her father. And so we've got her voiceover going on, and then we also have the voiceover of her father, which is ostensibly coming from uh, the journals and the letters that she's reading. And that voice is Royal Dano, who plays her father, Joseph Lang. And Royal Dano has a fantastic voice. I love listening to him, and I love the way that they're bouncing back and forth between the two VOs. Sometimes they're mingling, sometimes... What he's saying is what's happening to her at the moment, and that both his VO is coming from a past because she's reading it in a present, but we are hearing her entire story in her past, so it's a nice way of playing with time, too. And then you also get a third voiceover mixed in there at times, which is Elijah Cook Jr., who plays a fantastic role in this as Charlie the Drunk. And so his voice every once in a while will come back into the soundtrack to play again what he said earlier, but to kind of drive home some points because he gives her some very valuable advice about her father. And once again, all contributes to that destabilizing thing because there are way too many voices yes. there. It's almost like Casino. Yes, it is actually <laughs> almost like Casino. It's just way too many perspectives and way too many voices. And so you never have a sense of a stable narrator, whether it's an implied omniscient narrator or a single person whose account of the events that occur in this film can be taken for the truth. It's just a huge stew, a huge stew of crazy. It's a big stew of crazy. And that's, again, that's one of the things that makes this movie so great. It's such a feast of crazy. When I noticed they were using so much voiceover the first time, I thought maybe it was an effort to clarify the story a little bit, but it really doesn't do that. It gives you a lot of information that 
confuses you in some way. And I was I was actually listening to the film today without watching it just to l- pay attention to the actual writing. It's actually pretty well written dialogue. I know some not everybody always is crazy about the amount of voiceover in the film, but it's actually pretty sharp writing. You know, and it, I, I wonder how much of that was also the influence of you know people like Truffaut, like you know, like piling on all of that 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 you know give, giving it more of a literary flair by giving all that internal dialogue. But um, yeah, no, it, it is definitely like a uh, you know, a, a strong element of it but that, you know, you can get, you can get overwhelmed by like the visual overload of Messiah of Evil. So the fact that there's so much information coming at you orally as well is, you know, just kind of another flavor to pay attention to. It also makes sense too, that the dialogue at times, the, the voiceover is kind of purple prose because he's writing this as a journal entry. So it has more of that written flavor to it. Whereas hers sounds more like dialogue because she is telling it to us. And I know that that might not ring true for everybody, but that's how I interpreted it was that she's using spoken language and he's using using written language. So there's going to be a difference between those two things. I absolutely agree with you. And the style of, of the narration in, in those cases is very different. And yes, it is, I think, completely the difference between filtering something through a literary sensibility, the idea that you're writing this down, even if it's in your journal, for somebody else to read. You you are transforming your experiences into a narrative, whereas she's just telling her story. And it's told in a, a somewhat less sophisticated way, which is also a more direct way. When she's telling it to us, you know, it's not like she's telling it to the doctors or anything. This isn't, you know, uh, invasion of the body snatchers where we find that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is telling this to the doctors. This is her just talking to us as an audience. We have no reason to be able to hear her say this stuff, but she is saying this all for our benefit, which I really appreciate that again, kind of keeping us on our toes. And I do have to say one of the other things that for me, keeps me on my toes and keeps our main character, Arlette, on her toes is the gallery. And that becomes such a major setting for this. And, and uh, Bill, you mentioned that her father is an artist. And so his art gallery or his house becomes such a, a major place. And they keep returning to this house over and over again. And it just becomes the real locus of, of so many of the things that happen in this movie. Whenever a character is alone in a room of that house, they're being observed by figures that have a spectral presence. So they get so much mileage out of that location, you know, just in terms of like creating tension at all times. It's, it's not a film that really ever establishes a sense of normality that is then disrupted. I mean, you're into the nightmare from frame one and you don't ever really get a let up. I mean, the, the pace occasionally slows down, but even in those moments, you know, you're, you're constantly being given like creepy, you know, uh, images to consider just kind of in the margins of the frame, uh, especially in the widescreen uh, prints of it. I think that it's one of the great advantages that the film has, uh, because, you know, with the low budget, there's only so many kinds of spectacle scenes that they can afford to shoot. But, um, you know, they have uh, a, a good location and some talented artists to to create you know, a menacing kind of soundstage for them. You know, they, they get a lot from it. It's surprising more horror films don't actually employ you know, similar strategy. It also really does play with the idea of art as a form of invocation, uh, which is, is certainly in a lot of, of cultures a, a, a traditional thing, the way in which you call up 
things, whether you're calling your ancestors or you're calling the spirit world, is that you do it by drawing or by painting or by sculpting. And art becomes a medium that bridges two worlds. And I, I think that that is an underlying idea in this movie because the art is, first of all, so deranged that it really does seem to be channeling an unstable world that is bleeding over into the relatively normal world of Point Dune, Doom, by way of these canvases and these artistic characters. What kind of city do you think Point Doom is? Because it feels to me a little bit like maybe it's like an artist colony or maybe like a, I don't know, like a Saugatuck, Michigan kind of thing. Because it feels like there's a lot of art in this town that you can even go to an art dealer's place and that there's the the blind woman who's running an art dealership, which I, I absolutely love that kind of a weird thing. But then you also have the, uh, the, the male art dealer who's just like, oh, yes, we get magazines here in Point Doom and some of us can even read. And it's like, okay, it feels very hoity-toity, even though the people f- that we see – the ones who are still walking around under, under their own power and not captivated by the moon, they feel more like salt-of-the-earth type people. It completely feels to me like one of those towns that, or neighborhoods, if you're talking about a big city, that artists have moved into because they can live there cheaply. It, it does feel to me as though it is kind of an ad hoc artist's colony because it's an inexpensive place to live. And it's it's on the water. It's it's a really beautiful landscape, which many people find artistically inspiring. But it's also a town full of people who have extremely mundane jobs, who run gas stations. Uh, there's probably fishing in that area because they're right on the water. It's the kind of jobs that regular people do. So I feel in this movie that there is a certain tension between the regular people, though at a certain point, obviously nobody in this town is a regular person and the artists who have come here to commune with their muses and to make their art and to show their stuff in, in the art gallery run by the blind woman and maybe sell to tourists and show to dealers who come through. I mean, that's a tension that I I'm, was aware of growing up because I grew up in New York at a time when there were a lot of neighbors. My father was actually an art critic for a while and I would go with him to Soho, for example, which then really still was a manufacturing district and just see the contrast between the little parts of it that artists had taken over and the little parts of it that were still light manufacturing and the little parts of it where people whose grandparents had bought small houses still lived in. And it was a, a really interesting cultural mix, one where it wasn't really a mix. There were things existing side by side, but they weren't, none of them were of the other thing at that time. And I feel like that that's something that's, that's going on in Point Dune. It's clearly a place that drew the Joseph Lang character to create his pop art. Maybe he's drawn to the mobile stations or the, the, the look of the town, like the, 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 uh, the design of it. Like, but he's doing art that the art dealer doesn't like, like that he, he's doing something that 
you know, the, um, the character that Morgan Fisher plays the, in the art, in the art store, you know, he, he's, he dismisses it as not, you know, like if, if people like that kind of thing, you know, he, he, he feels like it's not real art. Like maybe the way that like a certain generation dismissed Andy Warhol or somebody like that, like that he's, he's maybe too hip. Um, but I think that it's also interesting because yeah, it is a case where most of the town that we see, um, they might seem like, um, like the silent majority type, you know, of that, of that era. And, you know, to have, you know, kind of middle class Americana characters feasting on the countercultural characters that kind of uh, enter the town. I mean, this is something that you see in Let's Get Jessica to Death as well, you know, where, um, the traveling hippie types, you know, visit a small town and next thing you know, they're, they're the victims of some kind of force, uh, that is controlling the small town people. But it, it you know, it speaks to, you know, real prejudices that could have existed without a supernatural element. Um, so that when they start chowing down on Tom's traveling companions, I mean, it comes, fr- you know, it is a horror movie thing, but it is also, you know, speaking to class tensions in the, you know, Watergate Vietnam era. Well, let's talk about Tom uh, before we get too far along, because we talked about this difference between the, the these artists and the rest of the people that are in the town. And Tom and his two companions are very much different from the rest of the people in the town. And Tom, who's played by Michael Greer, I mean, this guy... He's a little otherworldly. He just he he uh, reminds me of so many different characters where they are just above it all, and he's just there to experience real life, man. And the way that he's like exploiting Elijah Cook Jr. as Charlie in this uh, opening when we first get to meet Tom and his two gal pals, I dislike him so much but then he ends up being kind of the one of the heroes towards the end Uh, it's just very remarkable that he can do that turn because i just i I don't trust him through 99 percent of this film well the thing with that character is that it feels like they kept (laughs) i don't know that they didn't i i feel like they probably shot the script as much as they had but it feels like a character that is being rewritten from scene to scene as far as like how we interpret him because yeah he's a little bit a little bit haughty a little bit rude a little bit kind of a lothario you know and when we first meet him but then he's also got this sympathetic quality and becomes almost like a romantic hero but then he's also in the original concept the dark stranger i mean and i don't think he's playing it that way although when he did um press for the gay deceivers he he said that he just finished a film where he played the antichrist or the son of the devil or something so he made some kind of flippant comments in interviews which suggested that he thought he was playing a villain whether or not i i don't know the, the way we have the film now you don't get a sense that he is the dark stranger, even though he's playing him in the, I guess we call them the flashbacks that, you know, the story that the father tells, but there's nothing to suggest that he's the villain in the film that we have. So whether or not his, his meaning would have changed in the original concept, you know, it's kind of speculation, but we also have to remember that this is all the account of our Letty. So, Maybe it's just her perception of it, like, is how he's changing depending on her memory of the events. But yeah, it is, it is a character that, you know, because I, you know, I, I mentioned the counterculture thing, and I think that there's a little whiff of the Manson family only in that there's like a, um, you know, well, I mean, that first murder is very Manson family-ish. I mean, the little girl, you know, uh, looks a little bit like Sadie Atkins to me. And then you have this, 
counterculture-ish type with, you know, who's like charismatic and, you know, uh, traveling with a bunch of, you know, women under his seeming control. Uh, but, and that's before you even get to the notion of like a, uh, of someone spreading an evil new religion. I mean, there's a little bit of it. It's not like in your face, but I think that there's like, there's definitely like s- slight hints of, of, of a Charles Manson thing to it. Yeah. But he's, he's also kind of poked fun at as like, you know, this, this playboy that, you know, he tells stories about being born in a castle and coming from an aristocracy kind of background. And like, he may be, you know, full of shit. You don't really know and you can't really buy, like, cause, you know, even the girls contradict him, like, oh, well, I thought you were born in Spain. Oh, and it's Portugal. Like, like he, his story might not even be consistent as to what his background really is. And, you know, if he's collecting stories about the dark stranger, but he is the dark stranger. I mean, that's odd. I, I mean, I don't know, like, if, 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 like, what his purpose is in researching this, if he's trying to get in touch with his own destiny, or if it really is on the surface, a guy with a curiosity of, you know, urban legends. The fact that it's, that it's mysterious, you know, just kind of adds to the, to the quality, you know, of, of dream logic that the film has. I think you're absolutely right there. It, it is a, a character and, and, a set of relationships that he has that quite honestly don't make any sense when you come right down to it. And yet at various points in the film, they do make sense because they are woven into, as you said, this dream logic that the film has that can incorporate an enormous number of things. A lot of Messiah of Evil really does feel like the way it feels when you wake up from a dream and you try to impose a logic on it that's not there. Even though, clearly, I mean, this movie isn't a dream. This movie was written. This movie was made. There were a lot of issues that had to be dealt with when this movie was being made that clearly affected the way it came out. But, you know, it's not the product of anybody's subconscious. It's a conscious construction that nonetheless really does feel like a dream in many places and yeah. operates perfectly in that dream logic kind of way. I mean, that, that sequence in the movie theater is absolutely perfect as a dream, which I think is one of the reasons that it's the sequence that pretty much everybody who's ever seen this film remembers most vividly. It isn't really logical it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, but it is so utterly compelling in its nightmarishness that it's one of the standout sequences in this film. A lot of the dialogue talks about dreams, too. I mean, I think that the Mariana Hill character talks about falling in and out of dreams, uh, that her father said something about, you know, you know that you're falling out of the dream when you dream you're having a dream tom tells a story of a dream that he has uh, morgan fisher who played the the art dealer uh, he made a short film i think in 1984 called standard gauge where he talks about his experience making the film and he talks about how mariana hill was playing that character Arletti in a trance state. And so that when they had a two shot of them in the same shot, it was unusable because she would take such long pauses when it was her turn to talk that it rendered the master shot unusable. So I don't even know if that was him exaggerating, you know, an anecdote or if there was a case where she was doing a lot of takes where she was adding long pauses that they had to cut around or, or what, but she was choosing to play it as kind of an Alice in Wonderland 
in a world of nightmares kind of way. Like she's not playing it naturalistically as a choice. So I don't know if there were discussions even just at the production level about this is a dream or this is a dream logic kind of feeling, but I mean, it's, it's, it's there even just in the DNA. I mean, like in the performances themselves. I mean, they're, they're choosing to operate in, in a dream space. I mean, in that way, it does kind of, I mean, point towards things like, you know, David Lynch. I mean, even the, the, the movie theater sequence. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know if David Lynch ever saw it before making things like Mulholland Drive, but I mean, Jack Fisk, you know, clearly worked on both films, a production designer. So, but that's just one more thing to appreciate about it is that it has that, that touch of the surreal, which you don't always get in, uh, you know, American horror films. You could take certain elements of it and reinterpret it in other ways. You know, you can look at the Alicia Cook, or sorry, Elijah Cook Jr. character as being the harbinger type character. If you, know, if we're going to go cabin in the woods, you know, he's kind of the harbinger. He tells the story about what happened in the town before, you know, and he's hearing it from his mother and him as a little boy and and his recollection of all these things. Then you can take the, the four main characters, which are Tom, Arletti, and then Tom's two gal pals, Tony and Laura. And they're basically like, they're not teenagers, but they're like the teenagers who come to town and they get massacred by the, the family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or by Jason out at Camp Crystal Lake. They're, they just, they play that. But they write this in such a different way, and I know this was before the slasher boom, but they, they write this in such a different way by having Tom and the two women and by having the women kind of peel away as he's becoming more interested in Arletti and then Tony goes her own way. And then we get that incredible set piece at the grocery store and then Laura peels away and then we get that. Uh, set piece that you were just talking about with the movie theater and it's like in a quote-unquote normal movie these would be just you know maybe two men two women or whatever this would be and you would just have this whole body count you're just waiting for people to die but the way that they set this up and have these women peel off at these certain times and they become the fodder when you might you know you might expect okay these two women are going to die at some point but not in the ways that they do and not in such incredibly strong set pieces and that also Laura lasts so long and she has that whole adventure of meeting the albino trucker and you're thinking oh shit she's gonna die here no she goes into the grocery store following that person you're like why is she following this guy and just this whole it's almost like again that dream logic where you see somebody out of the corner of your eye and you're just chasing after them and and they keep disappearing and you keep finding them and they keep disappearing and just the weird cutting that happens inside of that uh, grocery store is just incredible. The whole dream logic of this film is the reason that I can't think of it without thinking about Carnival of Souls. They are different films in a lot of ways, but both of them operate purely on a kind of dream logic that makes them incredibly intense and self-contained experiences. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think even the look of the, the, the threat in, in Messiah of Evil, I mean, does look a little bit like Herc Harvey's kind of kind of ghoulish makeup look, too. I mean, it, it's it's got more in common with Carnival of Souls than Night of the Living Dead, for example. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, and I like that our villains 
they're they're not zombies, though they act like zombies at times. I mean, Real Dano in his voiceover calls them ghouls, and I'm like, okay, they're ghouls. You know, they, that's the perfect word for them because they're not actively coming after them all the time. You get those incredible shots. You talked about how uh, there's the the beach that's there and those incredible shots of the people on the beach, again, staring up at the moon. And they're not going to bother anybody at that point. They're just, again, completely entranced by the moon. And I just love that. And I love that there's that, I mean, we talked about the divide between the, you know, the, the people that come out, the outsiders coming into town and the townies themselves. And you've got that great divide right there, this huge dividing line between the ocean and, and the land and just all of these people waiting and just waiting for the moon to turn red and waiting for the dark lord to come back. And again, they keep that such a secret. I mean, they, they have the Elijah Cook Jr. character talking about the red moon, but I don't think they get into the Dark Lord until quite a bit into this. And then it starts to all make sense as much as this movie can make sense. And when you say as much as this movie can make sense, it just it brings me back to the idea that this movie, although it has nothing to do with the work of H.P. Lovecraft, is incredibly Lovecraftian because it is completely imbued by a self-contained mythology that clearly draws elements from all kinds of mythologies that we can all recognize various parts of, uh, depending on what we read and what we've been exposed to in our lives. But it is nonetheless completely self-contained. And, and Point Dune can abs- could absolutely be Dunwich or Innsmouth or any of those Lovecraft towns that are entirely rooted in not only a belief system, but a, a, a connection to a non-corporeal world that... Um, is on the other side of a veil and, and always has the potential to break through that you see in Lovecraft. And here it's like that veil is right there at the beach. You know, it almost feels like if they walked out into the water and I think it's very important not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think it's very important that our Letty and Tom breaching the water is kind of their undoing at the end of the film. It's their only way that they can go, but really it's, the one thing that they shouldn't or can't do is, is going into that water. It's almost like they're throwing themselves out to the dark Lord in that place. But, you know, and especially the, the way that Tom disappears and then that she's, I'm sure she's not that far from shore, but the way that they shoot it, it makes it look like she's out in this vast ocean. And I really like the way that they do that as well. I mean, the, the cinematography in this movie is, is incredible. And, you know, we've, we've touched a little bit on the whole, the, the reds and the blues, and that just keeps coming through the use of the blue lights and the red lights. And just to, to have certain scenes where half of her face is red, half of it is blue. And just to have those moments and then, uh, the, the use of the blues in uh, her father's paintings. I mean, that that main painting that we see time and again of those men uh, and this just this kind of like, I don't know, uh, you probably have much better words for it than I do, Maitland, but this kind of abstract minimalism of these faces. And it to me, it, it looks almost like they're in a mall. Is there like an escalator that he's painted as well? An escalator that never works. 
because we do students. It's just there. There, there are two of them. There are, are, I guess, an up and down escalator, but we never see them moving. So, yeah, another of those interstitial space kind of things. And I think Lee Harvey Oswald is also on that on that wall. Is that who that is? Do you know what he saw in uh, for his double feature when they caught him in the theater? But what about Cry of Battle and War as Hell? Where were they playing, huh? At the Texas Theater where they caught Oswald the day he shot Kennedy. But you didn't know that. Yeah, and, and and what he is meant to symbolize is definitely open to interpretation. Well, yeah, it could be that end of one era and the beginning of another as well. And the whole idea of the end of the 60s were such a turbulent time, right? And uh, uh, we've talked so many times on this podcast before about the weird spirituality that was happening in this country. So this whole idea of all of these people in Point Doom welcome, welcoming back this Dark Lord, it's like, okay, you know, it's... It's right up there with Scientology. I'll buy it just as much. Well, and again, it's so Lovecraftian because that whole connection with the sea just makes me say, oh, Dagon. (laughs) We're just talking Dagon here. Honestly, looking at this movie again, I did find myself thinking of that film Call of Cthulhu. At least one of you has probably seen that, right? I've never seen it. it, How how is that? I've read of it. I've never seen it. It is so good. It's amazing. It essentially takes a piece of that Lovecraftian mythology and films it as though it were a movie made in the early 1930s. And it is terrific. Oh, man, I'm going to I'm going to make an I'm making a note of it right now to find. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to say, no, it, it couldn't be the 30s. It would have to be even a little bit earlier because it's, it's silent. So it would it would have been in the late 20s. It is so good that it's just amazing. And, again, I'm somebody who went through a big Lovecraft phase when I was a teenager. I probably read the entire canon. And mm-hmm. then at a certain point, you know, you, you reach a point where certain works of literature turn around in your head and you see things in them that are really kind of distasteful and make them less interesting. And that- Call Cthulhu was, was something that made me remember what I thought was great about Lovecraft when I first began reading his work. Did the Lovecraft influence on Messiah of Evil jump at you on the first viewing? Do you remember? Yes, it absolutely did. And again, a big part of it was that connection to the sea because so many of the love, I mean, so many of Lovecraft elder gods are directly connected to the sea, but particularly Dagon. And the idea that they are the moving forces behind what we think of as the forces of nature, the force of the water, the force of the waves, all of that kind of thing. It always looked very Lovecraftian to me. The water imagery, uh, I think, also kind of ties into the um, the Second Coming, which was the the Yeats poem that was an influence on this. And I get, I think, when they shot it. It was at the time that they had changed the title from Blood Virgin uh, to The Second Coming as a, as a, as a nod to Yeats, which you know, betrays like certain kind of highbrow ambitions they had for the film. But, you know, the, the lines in that poem, like the blood, the blood dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And then at the end, it's, 
what rough beast you know slouches towards Bethlehem to be born you know Point Dune was called New Bethlehem in the in the film um and I, I think it's speaking to the um when people reach a, a point of a real dissatisfaction um you know they look to the old gods and the old ways this is the time of the beast of the antichrist to come back and so i think the dark stranger is meant to represent the Antichrist, you know, in this kind of reading of it, they were trying to employ the Yates thing. But I think I, I know that um, my friend Patrick Rapal, who does the Tracks of the Damned, I mean, he was bringing in the Joan Didion connection as well, because she had done a piece uh, slouching towards Bethlehem, I think. And that was kind of tying in the counterculture to that notion of disillusioned people and, and you know, and what changes were happening in society. And I think that you look at Messiah of Evil and, and, you know, how that kind of ties in the counterculture and people kind of rejecting that. It, it, it's like, it's an interesting mix of, of, of imagery and influences that you know, really, I mean, I, I think the Lovecraft thing is absolutely there, but I think that there's, but it's, it's, it's being kind of combined with, uh, these other things like Yates that, you know, you just don't, you don't see in it a lot of movies that would go out with titles like Dead People and Curse of the Screaming Dead, you know, <laughs> whatever they called it, like, you know, on, you know, year five of its theatrical life. You know, it, it, it's like a little bit more thoughtful and sophisticated about what it's trying to say. And I think that's absolutely why. For example, we're talking about it now because superficially you you could dismiss it as, oh, well, it's just another kind of, they're sort of zombies and it's sort of about hippies and it's kind of tied, it's kind of sociopolitical with horror elements in it. But there is something so much more rooted in so many other influences in this film that a genuine topic for conversation. There, there's so much we can talk about when we talk about this movie because it's not just rooted in a couple of ideas. It's alluding to an enormous variety of cultural things that were going on at the time, horror movie tropes, literary illusions, uh, some high like Gates and some low like Lovecraft. And I don't mean to disparage Lovecraft, but we all know there are issues with Lovecraft, however much we love him. It's all there combined in an incredibly sophisticated, interconnected knot of influences. And as I said, that's why we're talking about it. I think it was you, Bill, that brought up the whole idea of Alice in Wonderland. And this movie plays... Also with fairy tale conventions, this whole idea of having our main female protagonist, and it's nice that it's a female protagonist, and her going through this adventure, kind of like Alice, kind of like Dorothy, kind of like so many female protagonists from fairy tales, and having this whole search for the missing father. And then the idea of when the father comes back, that the father is not the person that she really wanted in her life. And I love that scene when Royal Dano does show up in the movie because we've only experienced him through voiceover. And now here he is in the flesh and things play out in a very unexpected way. And I really didn't um, plan on seeing Royal Dano recreate, as you mentioned, that scene from Pere Lefou when he has all the blue paint all over his face and 
it, it just really took me by surprise the first time I saw it. And it took me by surprise again last night when I rewatched this movie, because I forget that moment happens. Yeah. It's interesting. In, in, in the Godard film, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it, but like it, it comes at a moment where the Belmondo character, Jean-Paul Belmondo uh, has committed an act of violence then he he paints his face blue, and then the screen cuts to the word um, "lay art," like art. But then I think like a pencil or something like adds to a couple letters that changes it from art to la mort, like death. Like it's 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 creating the link between art and death, and then you know then uh, you know further violence ensues. But I think that yeah, it, it, they're trying to make a, that same kind of illusion. In Messiah of Evil, uh, you know that link between art and death, but I, I it serves so many other functions beyond just the Godard reference that you know young film students want to show. You know their horror movie has a Godard <laughs> influence. It also you know it's I mean his face has the mark. Um, it's a little bit hard to see even in the best transfers of the film, but um, this is something that the Dark Stranger would have done to Arletti in the original version of the film, like in the original version. He emerges from the water, puts his hand on her face, and it burns her and leaves the the scar, even though no one will believe her story. Something like that must have happened to uh, the Royal Dano character. But it's interesting because he conceals it with the the blue paint in like a in an act of futility. It always reminds me of scenes like in Death Game or Pigs or White of the Eye or Wild at Heart or like any film where characters start covering their face in exaggerated makeup and it makes it like almost I don't like to say kabuki but it makes it like a very dis- disturbing kind of thing every time that someone like uh, you know pulls that that uh, convention out it always works for me uh, you know but it, it is it is a shocking moment because it you know I, I read at least one take on the film that like you almost feel embarrassed for Royal Dano like he's he's so humiliated by just the circumstances like him as an actor like covered in paint on the ground looking so ravaged but it it makes it kind of a moving emotional moment in a film that is deliberately detached and spacey for a lot of the running time i mean it is it is it is like maybe the most emotional uh real moment you know between the two characters in the film and what's great is that because of i think of that paint it feels ritualistic it feels mm. as though yeah. somehow it's connected to something that actually isn't the personal trauma of that moment. It's also some rite of passage or something. Well, yeah, it almost feels like they're making art at the same time that he's being destroyed because of the way that the paints are mixing and, and the paints are on the walls and everything. And I'm just like, okay, I'd be very curious to see what this looks like after they take the body away. And it also really, really makes you want to see the script really badly and just see exactly how that was written because it is my strong suspicion that certain parts of the way a lot of scenes in this movie work out were not scripted that the the material was there but there were there were some very personal things that were brought to bear on what was written and in I I would say pretty much every case helped make this movie as interesting as it is. I, I don't know if if I'm reading too much into it, but every time Joy Bang's character puts the blue washcloth on her face in the tub, I always wonder if that's meant to be overt foreshadowing uh, to the, the blue face paint, uh, or if it's just, you know, just she's just that comfortable in someone else's house. 
I would totally buy your argument. Yeah, it's one of those where you can't really say, oh, no, there's no way that that meant that, because I think you can interpret this movie so many different ways. And not because it's a blank slate of a movie, because it's a very rich movie. There's just a lot going on in it. So there's a lot of opportunity to read parts of this movie against other parts of this movie. Yeah, it was made by people that knew about symbolism. It, we can analyze it and know that they they probably had you know those those richer intentions. I like that we get some of those shots uh, of the what, what would you call that? It's like towards the end, the ghouls come for them through these windows, but there are these. I guess it's some of the windows that are in the house, and we get shots of those windows throughout this movie and we don't really necessarily at least i don't necessarily know what they are until towards the end when suddenly i see all these ghouls coming through them and that sequence of the the ghouls just kind of throwing themselves through those windows i don't want to say devil may care but it just it doesn't feel like they care about what's going to happen after they land they are so determined at that point to get arletti and tom Though, again, it isn't that zombie kind of thing, because there's some real human reactions when Arletti and Tom are fighting back with them. And I was very surprised that they're able to escape from that situation, because it feels like that's that's the climax of the movie to me, is what's happening in that moment. But then, no, it continues on, and it becomes even stranger and even creepier. And it comes that moment comes right after... Something that I thought was, again, the end of the movie is when Arletti starts to bleed from her eyes, because that's something that we have started to see in this movie is people bleeding from their eyes, and that's the signal that they are turning into one of these ghouls. So there's a great moment where the uh, this whole crowd of ghouls is coming out. Suddenly, the police, who have been completely missing from this film, the police show up and they start shooting at these people. Willy nilly. I mean, there's no stop or I'll shoot. They're just out there doing it. And then suddenly one of the cops starts to bleed from his eyes. The other cop shoots his partner to no effect. And then our main, uh, then the bleeding eye cop turns around and shoots his partner. And then they fall upon him like wild dogs, like those wild dogs that we saw our, our uh, gas station attendant shooting at earlier. It's just it's such a great moment for me. But yeah, that whole idea of the the bleeding from the eyes when Arletti starts doing that, I was just like, that's it. She's done. But she manages to get through that somehow. The bleeding eye imagery always reminds me of things that come later, like the um, films of Lucio Fulci, like Gates of Hell or City of the Living Dead. I mean, that kind of, the, the eye the eye injury it reminds me of, of of his work and actually even just that scene of the attack I mean some of the the framing of that reminds me I I don't know Maitland if you would disagree with me or not on this but it reminds me a little bit of Suspiria I mean the ways that things are framed um you know with the 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 silhouettes you know in the in the windows above um you know that it reminds me of you know things like the more stylized Dario Argento films from later in the seventies and into the eighties you know, and these were things you know that that, you know, would not have happened yet at the time that they shot this in 71. So it just, I mean, they, I, I assume that they were just all pulling from similar influences like Antonioni and not that you know, people like Argento or Fulci ever even saw this film. I mean, maybe they did, but I I, I doubt it influenced them uh, if they even were aware of it. But um, yeah, I mean, that was the thing that jumped out at me when I first saw it was like how this 
kind of pointed towards things like that, or even um, the way that figures kind of leap into the frame reminds me of, you know, the ending of The Brood, the Cronenberg film. I mean, there's a lot of things that would point towards kind of imagery that you would see in later films uh, from the 70s and 80s. I do absolutely think of Argento when I look at this movie, because there is a degree of stylization that absolutely makes me think of Argento. But interestingly, thinking about it, it, I am forced to go back to thinking that perhaps everybody involved was, and and definitely Argento because he's Italian. I, I can't say as much for Hike and Cats, but there is something deeply rooted in religious paintings and particularly the image of the stigmata and the image of bleeding eyes as a, a, a sign of having seen things that you as a, a human being aren't supposed to see marvelous things or diabolical things either way. I feel that influence in this film. I mean, that, that bleeding eye image is so incredibly vivid and so echoes things that you see in paintings from probably the 16th century forward, possibly earlier, but you know, most of my art knowledge starts later because that's my failure, I guess. You should be so ashamed of yourself for that. Come on. You always figure you should know more than you do, right? Because you should have looked a little bit farther and tried a little bit harder. But I only got as far as I got with certain things. Um, and as far as I got really helped me with Italian horror, I can you know that that stigmata point is very yeah is really interesting. I think I think you're right. I, I can I can see it now that you that you bring that up. That scene with the cops always reminds me of um, of scenes towards the end of Romero's Martin, and even uh, a scene in Blue Velvet where like the cops show up and there's there's action, but it's it's so disorganized and incoherent that it almost seems to be making a comment on how useless police are towards these kinds of threats. There's no great action set piece, you know, to it. It's just, it's it's like absurd comedy in a way. Yeah, it's not like the cops are here to save us. They are here to basically shoot each other and then becomes another ghoul. And and maybe one of them will get away and have to write a report. <laughs> and these are the only two cops we see. And everybody else in town, by this point, has turned into a ghoul. And they just are out there wandering around, going and, and that... Oh man, that image of them eating at the meat counter or the the meat trough or whatever that is at the grocery store. Oh my goodness, is that great? Oh, it's fantastic. Looks like the one guy's chewing on a liver. I'm like, I'm like, oh my god. And that, of course, is so Night of the Living Dead, and you know, so every film you ever saw making a point about blind consumer consumption and which means a lot of Romero because that was definitely a thing with him. Yeah. It, 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 it's a metaphor that is so completely apt for any kind of horror film that it's not amazing how many people used it. It's amazing how many people didn't. Yeah. The way that they cut from the, uh, the ghouls consuming, uh, the woman to just products on shelves. I mean, yeah, it, it, the consumerism point that, you know, things like Dawn of the Dead would do later. I mean, it's, it's, it is right here as well. I love that editing. I love how they do that after she's there and they're falling upon her and you get those 
still shots of the different things inside of the grocery store and the way that we get that echoed when um, the uh, Joy Bang is being eaten in the movie theater and just those same still shots of the movie theater. And it's kind of this like, you know, you can talk about the empty consumerism of the grocery store and it's almost like the empty entertainment of the, uh, the, the movie theater. And I like the, I mean, those shots of her coming into the movie theater and it just looks like such a huge place. And then when we get her sitting at, at the uh, uh, waiting through the trailers, it just seems to get smaller and smaller as more people come in. I know that that's not true, but that's how it feels. It just, it feels like we have fewer and fewer seats as these people come in and just pile up behind her and yeah i love that rhythm of that editing and the use of that um sammy davis jr western that's going on it just it fits so perfectly with everything that's happening in that scene if i were teaching an editing class i would i would pull that sequence and just say look at this and look at the amount of narrative that is packed into this without a single word without any kind of other information except that girl sitting there eating her popcorn in that theater and those people filing in and surrounding her. It's perfect. You could not make it better. You know, you, you could have 10 times money to throw at it and you could not make that scene better. Yeah. That scene is interesting because it's, um, I, I think ooh, they, they tempted, they had, um, I think the bandwagon trailer, you know, as the placeholder for what they're watching. Cause that was just what they had, you know, in the, uh, in the cutting room to, to put in there. But, um, when the film was taken away from them, whoever edited it, um, I can't remember, was it not Billy Weber? I can't remember uh, off the top of my head, the guy that, um, cut it, put in that footage from, is it Gone with the West? The, um, this is the Sammy Davis Jr. And it's just rendered all scenes of violence cut together incoherently. I don't know if this is meant to, be political. My friend Patrick Rapol, who I did a, I did a podcast with him about Messiah of Evil on Tracks of the Damned, he mentioned this, that the, um, if we're putting the, um, like the Vietnam thing on this, that this would be the moment that it actually applies because you have this kind of middle American audience of like well-dressed kind of small town people in like their suits and, and, and formal attire watching just incoherent violence and they're completely stone faced and they're just wrapped up in it, but they're not really reacting to it emotionally. Um, so much so that they even kind of put off eating the girl <laughs> until it's over that they're kind of hypnotized by just incoherent violent spectacle and whether or not that's meant to be some sort of commentary on how the Vietnam War played on television to people and they, it didn't really change behavior. It's, it's kind of a bold artistic choice for someone kind of removed from the production of it. I mean, this was somebody that was brought in to essentially salvage the film, uh, on the part of whoever, you know, the original, uh, financiers, I think, brought in someone new to recut it. But this was kind of a, a creative choice i think it was a pretty compelling choice i mean maybe more uh confrontational than if they had used the bandwagon as like a counterpoint you know it, it's more provocative that's quite a potent argument which i say as somebody who who was a kid in the 60s and a young teenager in the 70s and who grew up watching vietnam war stuff on television. It, it was, it was just omnipresent. It was body bags being taken off planes, 
It was embedded correspondence, delivering the news from the field. It, I mean, that was the war in our living rooms. And I was very, well, it wasn't very young, but I was quite young. And seeing all of that. And that kind of imagery is very, very potent for me in a way that it probably isn't for anybody who's younger than I am, which means an awful lot of people at this point, because that really was America's first living room war. And I was of the generation who saw it when I was young. Well, that said, I'm curious about the idea of the way she has to murder her own father. Do you see much symbolism in that as far as this whole rejecting of the people in charge of something like the Vietnam War? Yeah, I think there's a very solid argument to be made there. I can't say I've thought about it deeply enough to to make that argument coherently, but I'm sure the material is absolutely there for it. I mean, a song like War Pigs by Black Sabbath really mixes this whole idea of Vietnam and Satan and that the war is kind of being, you know, propagated by people with uh, baser instincts, let's say, and that, uh, you know, Satan is laughing and spreading his wings in, in the song. And I think that kind of plays into this whole idea, too, of the we are welcoming the, the Dark Lord back into the world by being this kind of shitty society that we are at this time. I know that was very eloquent, but... No, and I, I think that I think that the film plays out with that with that rationale as far as you know that the the return, you know, of of the dark stranger. I mean, I think that you know everything that's going on in the town suggests that there, you know that is you know what everyone is waiting for, and it's not just because the moon has brought about some sort of curse uh, that makes them feel this way. I want to talk about the end of this movie because the end again there are many beats to it and it's not just a real simple wrap up. You know, I talked about how she and Tom go into the water and Tom disappears. And then we have her there in the water alone and we wrap things up. And again, this is where, you know, Maitland, I totally agree. I wish I could read the script of this because I would love to know, you know, more about this. And Bill, you alluded to some of the things that were in the script that, didn't get shot this idea of the the dark stranger coming back and marking Arletta and letting her go and there's this whole idea of her now in the version that we see that she solves things a little bit with a voiceover and talks about how she was rescued she doesn't necessarily know what happened but here she is painting so again we get the return of the painting and she's in this asylum, and her curse now is not necessarily that mark from the Dark Stranger, but her curse is that she now lives to tell the, the, the story, that no one will believe her, but yet she now is burdened with this knowledge, which I think is, it might not have been the original uh, view of the filmmakers, but I think it's a really powerful ending regardless. Yeah, I agree. Yes, it's very powerful. And it's made especially powerful by the fact that you do see her in the water, which speaks to a kind of baptism, that she's been baptized in the blood of this stuff that she's seen. And yes, she does have the responsibility to tell, but she is also that prophet crying in the wilderness. wilderness. Nobody is going to listen to her. So it's a, a very dark, ironic ending. A surprising ending that you know the the menace returns after a hundred years and it 
he's you know he has that he has it's essentially like it reminds me not 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 to cheapen the moment, but it reminds me a little bit of the stories that you know you hear of Bill Murray interacting with fans saying that no one will believe you. You know that that same kind of you know he brings back and it's it's a and it's a um but it's a subtle thing because if if it plays in that this is all her paranoid fantasy of what really happened, then you know the fact that she's survived to tell the tale. You know it's ambiguous what she really encountered there. The fact that the original script. Um, had her with the marked face, you know, let us know that this was real, but the way that it is now, it is ambiguous, um, which I, I, which I prefer because you can, you can, you can read it however you, you wish to. But yeah, I mean, this was, this was a case where they had to find this ending in the cutting room for, you know, in the cutting room. And I don't know if what they intended would have been, uh, stronger or, 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 uh, or more conventional. And I just have to wonder then, does this imply that the Dark Stranger has returned and is walking the earth and doing all of the evil things that he wanted to do? And that's what it feels like to me is that she's stuck here now in this asylum. Evil is loose on the, in the world and is just going to go about doing its thing. And she is helpless to stop it. Which is a real downer. But yes, I, I think that's a <laughs> legitimate interpretation. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play the rest of our interview with Willard Hike. You can hear the first part of this on our More American Graffiti episode, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to Ovid.tv. That's ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code PODCAST and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code podcast, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the scripts. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths. 
teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertreestories.com. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? It was kind of uh, more of an unusual profession at the time, I'm sure. Well, I had always been interested in movies and uh, in high school. A friend of mine and I, actually, my, uh, Curtis Hansen, who passed away recently, uh, we made a 50-minute um, film when we were in high school using a, a friend of mine's uh, friend of my father's Bolex camera, eight millimeter camera. How went to SC, I went as journalism major. The cinema department was very small. It was the easiest school to get in. So if you walked by, it was sort of like being the one come and say, uh, would you like to be a film student? So I went I switched majors and uh, into the department. I started making that's where I met George Lucas. We were there at the same time. How did you and, and Gloria Katz meet? Uh, Gloria was in the film department at UCLA. And as I said, I was at SC. And a mutual friend uh, suggested that we go over to UCLA one evening because out of the wild angels. And Portland was sort of a god for us in those days because he was young and had lot of movies already. So um, Gloria was at the screening and I uh, was introduced to her and I sat next to her and she had on the first mini skirt I had ever seen. She had just come back from Europe. So I was really impressed. That's how we met. When are you in school versus when are you actually working on stuff like, uh, say, like The Devil's Eight? Let's see. The Devil's Eight must have been about 1969, uh, and I I actually quit the film school to um, yes, I I quit film school to go to work at AIP American International, and they were making a lot of motorcycle movies and things like that, and uh, I became a reader. So that's part of the timeline. I dropped out of. SC. I never finished in um, probably eight, and then I was working in '69, and we met, we shot Messiah of Evil in '71. When did you and Gloria realize we were going to not just be together together, but also business partners and 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 creative partners? I should say about that same period. We were married in 1969, and she had been writing a script with a friend of hers who bailed out and uh, quit the project. And so I said I would help finish the script, and from then on we could to work. What was that collaboration like between the two of you? It's probably more collaborative than a lot of things like writing a novel or something, because the, the words themselves, except the dialogue probably, aren't um, as important as when you're writing book fiction 
And most of the time in screenwriting, it's really a lot of problem solving and what happens next and now what do we do? And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that difficult and it's historically been done collaborating a lot in, in film. Of course, in those days, we were writing on typewriters and mimeograph and with uh, carbon paper, etc. It got a lot easier when computers came in. I read once that you guys had one computer with two keyboards hooked up to it? Yes, we had one computer in the beginning with two keyboards. And then um, at the end, we, we were writing on... Uh, we had two um, very large screened computers, and we sat at a partner's desk across from each other. The t- technology definitely got better as we... I can't even imagine, especially things like rewrites, how difficult that must have been when you're doing that in the early 70s and all the way up into the 80s. That must have been such a chore. Well, no, just practically, it was, yes. It was... Um, as I said, we started with mini, uh, with uh, carbon paper. So we would, I would type, and then we would get a page, uh, and then we would each have a page, um, and then at, when we were finished, we would take it to a typing service, and they would cut it. They would cut a pencil, and we'd have to correct that on a light box with blue correction fluid, and then would mimeograph script and bind them and and uh, finally they would be sent out and today when you finish the script you send it in by email you know it's it's a lot different process how did the opportunity for messiah of evil come about at that time it was a, a um an agent named boy who later became a, a studio executive somebody uh, mentioned to him that there were student films being shown at UCLA and SC and some of them were pretty good and maybe he should talk to the people who made them. So he started, um, he was one of the first who started actually signing young writers as, as clients and trying to get, get us work from there. One of the other agents who quit being an agent managed to raise some who had money and uh, wanted to get into the film business. And he came to uh, Gloria and me and said, they will finance a low-budget film, but it has to be a horror movie. And we said, that's fine with us, whatever genre they want to do. So uh, we quickly wrote a screenplay, and uh, I think we got $90,000 to make the film. And uh, it was considered than we had hoped for because investors had used the money to re-roof their houses or something. I don't know. But it, it, became, it became an issue, the money on the film. But um, So anyway, we had opportunity, and so we quickly wrote Messiah of Evil and, and uh, put together a crew. Gloria's brother, Stephen Katz, shot it. And uh, Jack Fisk was our art director and... Uh, who went on to um, to do a lot of Terry Malick's films. I think he was art director on most of Terry's movies. And uh, Goy's brother had a career too. Um, so, oh, and uh, actually, our one of a, both of our editors on that film, Billy Weber, became a big editor, and Morgan Fisher, who was our second editor, was a sort of um, underground um, art 
filmmaker who's had a career in that area. Uh, so it, it was fun and, and unexpected. Was it always kind of a given that you would be the director of the film? Yeah. Throughout our career together, uh, I directed and Gloria produced, and we co-wrote. How close to what we see with Messiah of Evil is it to what you wrote originally? It's pretty close, except there's themes that we never shot. So it doesn't, that by by the ending, it gets a little odd because uh, there were things that were supposed to be uh, shot at the end, and by then we ran out of money. And uh, so we never really finished it. There became a fight between those Texas investors and their creditors, and eventually um, we... The film was actually developed and processed at Technicolor because they were trying to get into lower-budget independent films, and also they a big um, printer that did Technoscope, and um, which actually George used in um, THX. It was shot in Technoscope, which is a widescreen format where you get it's a split frame, so you get twice as much film, and when the budget's really low, that becomes an issue. So um, anyway, they process the film, but it then steal the work print out of Technicolor, and we edited it as far as we could get and tried to raise money and were unsuccessful. And so we finally gave it back to the investors, and they did some re-editing. They added a, sort of an awful score, but they never shot the scenes that were missing, and so it's kind of it's kind. Of, put together in an odd way at the end but um and then it was released in several versions by different people and uh i had i had a uh there was a knock on years later and i was being sued by uh was it romero or somebody who died of the living dead yeah romero that, mm-hmm. yeah yeah because um they called they called the movie Dead People in one of its releases, which was really a catchy title. But anyway, so the suit was that they were upset with the title. They said it was stolen. Anyway, I explained it was no longer our film. What would that ending have been like? You know, I was trying to... that. I think there was a much larger scene on beach where there was to be a huge crowd scene and then um, I think there was, there was more that took place at this sort of mental institution before the very ending. Right, yeah, because we kind of get her introduced there at the beginning, and I'm I'm trying to remember if we see her there again at the end. I think I think they did. Well, I'm not actually. I'm not sure if they go back. I yeah, I I thought they did go back at the end, but they, no, I guess they didn't. I I guess they, I don't know. I don't remember actually. I have to ask about your cast and especially about Benny Robinson and where he came from, because he is just the most striking guy in that film. And I love every moment he's on screen. Benny Benny has a following from Messiah of Evil. I have no idea what happened to him. We were looking um, actually for an albino. I mean, it, it was sort of written that it was just because it was in, supposed to be a strange character. Um, you probably can't do that anymore. But 
he was, you know, the uh, our friend who was film school with us, who became a director, said he had interviewed a lot of albinos, and one of them was funny, and we thought he was great. He had, he was a really sweet man, and he had some problems with his eyesight, but it even sort of stranger appearing. Yeah, he was a great character. And in the scene where he says something about the music that's playing on the radio, and he says Wagner instead of Wagner, that's the way he said it. So that that was great. We left it that way. So you you hurry up and rush and write this script. And I'm curious where some of these ideas came from. I mean, how do you manage to to pound this script out? And what did you say, three days to get this to the producers? Yeah, we were thinking of locations and things. And also, like a lot of people, I love Lovecraft. So we were trying to think if you could put Lovecraft into a contemporary setting. And I grew up in the ballet, and we shot a lot of the film, Studio City, where I had lived. And it was, I don't know, it it came out of those kind of things. And so the idea of letters is a very sort of... uh, fashioned kind of horror film or horror literature with letters being written and read and so forth. So that was it. I've read this, but I've never been able to pinpoint where he is in the film, but is Bill Norton in this movie? Bill Norton in, in I think the final version that was on the most recent DVD, um, the film opens with a man running and I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's Walter Hill. Yes, if in the film they go back in time and talk about uh, the the um, the stranger in black who rides in or something, there's a scene on a horse, <laughs> and and Bill Norton is the guy on the horse, and I think there's a campfire, and you have the feeling that he's been killed by this this stranger. Uh, anyway, that was Norton. Bill Norton went to film school with Gloria, and so he was he was a friend. He actually went on because when uh, after we did American Graffiti, and and when George was wanting to do a sequel, in those days sequels were sort of more looked down upon until Francis made The Godfather sequel, and so we said, well, we really don't want to do a sequel, and so we suggested Bill, and uh, he did the sequel to American Graffiti more American graffiti. Yeah. You mentioned Walter Hill being in the film. I was very surprised to see that that was him at the very beginning getting uh, murdered by that little girl. Years later, I sent him one of the DVDs or maybe it was a, a, a tape in those days. And I said, they've re-released it again, Walter. So he put it on for his girlfriend who was a uh, producer, I think. And so I want you to see just what do you think of the guy in the opening? And she watched and she said, well, I, it's okay. He's just running. He's not doing much acting. That's, that's me. <laughs> by, by then, Walter looked much different. And she's kidding. The little girl who slashes his neck was the editor's niece. It sounds like this was kind of a family affair. Yeah, it's a very much so. Yeah. Yeah, my parents, my parents are in it. My grandmother is in it. They're, I think they're both, they're both in the uh, in the theater where Joy Bang gets eaten, and the other one is uh, in the supermarket 
we had a lot of out of work. It was during a period where aerospace people were being laid off. So we had a lot of out of work aerospace engineers <laughs> playing gold. I mean, is is that their thing? Are they zombies? Are they vampires? Are they oh, that was always a question. Yeah, we never really figured that out. It seems like, I guess they were uh, ghouls because they eat people. and um, But they did have sort of zombie attributes, too. It was evil, no matter what. My best experience on that movie was that when Fight and Sound came out, of their tw- I think it was their 25th anniversary edition or something, and they had... Um, they reviewed it as a great, you know, un un or, or appreciate. And at the end of the review, they said uh, the tie of Messiah of Evil was seen once in Annie Hall, I think it was, where he does a montage sort of mocking Los Angeles and they go past a drive in theater that's playing Messiah of Evil. And the last line of the sight and sound review said, if only Woody Allen had ever made a film as great as Messiah of Evil. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was pretty wonderful. What was it like working with some of the older actors like uh, Royal Dano or Elijah Cook Jr.? Oh, that was wonderful. Elijah Cook Jr. was great. Royal Dano was a real character and really got into it and loved screaming at um, Marianne Hill. And he, uh, that was fun. We had a, originally wanted Hank Warden to play that role because of the searchers. And uh, and then, actually, I met Hank Warden and uh, gave him the script. And he said, oh, this sounds like fun and so forth. And and then he came back the next day and he said, I have to give you the script. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, my wife read it and doesn't think it's suitable material. And so I mean, but I love that Royal's in there, and I love that you use his voice because his voice is just so terrific. Oh yeah, um, he's great. He's, he was great. I guess he's passed away, but uh, oh, and Elijah Cook was terrific too. It was no, it was a real treat to you know you have growing up with films, you have treats like that occasionally where you're using old actors or the day that we wrote something called Lucky Lady and they were trying to get a director and it was after Stanley Don. I can remember seeing Two for the Rain. I mean, uh, Singing in the Rain. Uh, of course, at the time, I said, well, isn't he dead? And, it, and they said no. And in fact, he was 49. He had started so early in his career that he was a uh, director. So that was interesting working with him and learning about his past. And how about your main actors? How how was it working with Mariana Hill? Well, she was sort of a trip. She was it it worked well because she's sort of very um, at the time she was sort of very spacey and ethereal. So that worked okay, and uh, she was fine. She was she was a pleasure to work with. When you're making Messiah of Evil, you said that that was more like 71 that it was originally coming out? Yes. No, it was 71 when we shot it. When you shot it, okay. Yes, it was 1971 when we were doing both American Graffiti and then later that year, for 72, when we actually um, finished the script. 
So it was somewhere in that period. That that was the period. With all the issues that you had with uh, the financing and everything of Messiah of Evil, what was the release of that film like? Well, there wasn't one. It's, I mean, at a certain point, when we gave it up and we gave them the work print that we had stolen from Technicolor back to them and so forth, that was the end as far as we were concerned. It was a couple years later, probably, that it was released the first time. And... Um, uh, maybe that's when it was called Dead People. I don't know. But um, and then years went by, and and I guess that uh, yeah, I'm, I, when that drive-in theater was playing it, somebody else was releasing it, and then it got picked up a couple of times on tape and on uh, DVD. Finally, so I mean, we never had. There was never a release. We never got that far. I mean, we never did uh, credits or put titles on it or anything. So what was it like for you when you finally got to see it? Well, it was it was um, nostalgic by that time. Yeah, we hadn't seen it for a, a long time. And then it got better. At the last time it was put on DVD, they actually invited me and Billy Weber, the editor, to do the timing with them. So that was kind of fun because we, we sort of paid more attention to it and watched it as we timed it and did the color correction. But uh, no, we never had a real, a real opening. I've heard that you haven't seen or hadn't seen at that point Carnival of Souls. No, people always ask that. No, I have. I'm not sure I've seen it since then. But no, people have asked if uh, no, we I hadn't seen that. And actually, I hadn't seen any of the George Romero films. Um, the horror films I followed were the earlier ones. You know the. The uh, Bella Lugosi and Frankenstein, those kind of films. Edgar J. Homer, James Whale. It was interesting because Gloria's brother ended up shooting gods and monsters, which was wonderful. No, I, I never saw that film. I never. I hear it was similar, or we were similar, or something. A little bit, yeah, but not too much. I mean, it just. I think it's that atmospheric horror, and that you create such uh-huh. a wonderful atmosphere and just it feels like such a walking nightmare for your main character yeah i mean that's what we were trying to do and then the the idea was to turn the valley into that which uh, um actually what's his name in the song which i love uh, free falling the which is about the san fernando valley tom petty's free falling is one of the great la rock songs I do love the um, appreciation of Lovecraft that you brought into it as well. Yeah, I read a lot of science fiction and horror as a kid when I was in high school and stuff. And so that was that was a big thing. I was more into, I remember, like I'd be washing my car and I had a speaker in the window of the house. I'd be washing the car in the driveway and I was playing the soundtrack from the film Dracula which was odd because there was very little sound on the soundtrack. <laughs> it was mostly almost a silence. Yeah, yeah, it was right there at that, uh, what was that, 31, was that? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, not a lot of uh, sound on the not soundtrack sometimes, of, yeah. Not a lot of dialogue, no. Here we are talking in 2019, and probably the biggest film of the year is Avengers Endgame. And just, it's made more money than God, almost more money than George Lucas. (laughs) 
But when you are adapting Howard the Duck for the screen, I mean, yeah, we've had uh, Superman, Flash Gordon, these kind of things, but it's not every day that we get a comic book movie. And I'm very curious, what was your guys' approach to taking this almost underground comic character and translating him to the big screen? Well, George had wanted to do this, and one day, I think he was working on something at Universal, and he said, let's go for lunch to uh, Mort's Deli, I think it was called, in Ventura, in uh, Studio City. So we had lunch there, and he said, there's something I want to show you next door. So there was an old comic book store next door, and he said, I think Howard the Duck would be a really great idea for a movie. We didn't know anything about it and weren't so sure. And then it was a while later, I think it was almost a year or two after that, that um, we started talking about it again. And he said, uh, well, why don't we try to do it? And and uh, so we got the deal to do it at Universal. And that was, that's how it came about. I think That was, I think, the first of the uh, Stanley, um, you know, the Marvel comic movies. Right, right. Yeah, they were trying to get their cinematic universe <laughs> off the ground way yeah. long time ago. I remember reading about James Cameron trying to make like Spider-Man and X-Men, but that, I think that was even 90 they were looking at that. So, yeah. Yeah, you were at the forefront. Yeah. Yeah, and it was also right on the edge of computers, you know, CGI stuff, which would have made it much more easy, but uh you know, we were still dealing with puppets, and it was it was difficult. You uh, well, obviously there are some special effects in Messiah of Evil, but had you had to deal with that many special effects in a film since then? I mean, that was uh, plus you're like 16 years on from Messiah of Evil at this point. I don't think there were special effects in Messiah of Evil. Well, I don't I'm think thinking, we had. Any. I'm thinking of like practical effects like the guy being all bloody and hoisted up uh you know by his feet and oh yeah no we had the, we had those things we had so yeah it was all practical and it was yeah but yeah but we were making uh howie the duck with the at the time the greatest special effects house in the world you know was was uh lucasfilm and ilm so um it was even then though there was a scene in howard the duck where the duck is blasted out of his off his planet, and in the beginning he's going through an apartment building, and you see different little duck scenes, and well, that because it was on a wire, and and it was a shot where it was practical, where he was actually in a chair, and they were, and they had to get rid of the wires. Well, getting rid of the wires was this enormous, expensive, enormously expensive deal, and um, you know. A few years later, it wouldn't have cost anything. So things changed rapidly, and uh, and I don't think we would have done a practical duck. You know, you wouldn't have done that today, certainly. No, no, and I think even because Howard the Duck's been showing up in the Guardians of the Galaxies Galaxy movies, and I think that's one hundred percent computer generated. Oh, it is. No, it definitely is. Yeah. You know, I've kind of skipped over another little movie that you um, helped get off the ground. Uh, something like uh, Star, something or other Star Wars. I think the name of it was. <laughs> I've heard of that film before. Yeah. When when were you guys brought in to work on that? 
Well, we had heard about it, and George was telling us about it for a long time, and he was telling everybody about it, and we were all worried. He didn't really call us until the very end. He was in London, and um, they were going to shoot, and he said, I think I need some dialogue work, and I need some, you know little things here and there. And I don't want to tell the studio because they're panicked enough already because that film costs $13 million. And he said, so would you guys go through and do a polish and that we just can't tell anybody? And we said, sure. So we, we went through the script and, you know, added dialogue and stuff. And then, uh, I guess we actually telexed it over there. I forget how it got there. But anyway, uh, he was in London and we were sending pages. So it was literally as they were shooting. So what do you bring to the script? I, from what I understand, you were the guys that brought more of the humor and actually some of the more quotable lines. Yeah, that's essentially what it was essentially dialogue. I mean, the scenes were all laid out. And um, so that was it was really a dialogue polish. Yeah. Yeah. We came up with some lines. I've read that Gloria tried to make Princess Leia an actual human being. Princess Leia is an interesting thing because the influence there was, yes, Gloria did that. But also when George originally was conceiving Princess Leia, he had a picture on his wall of Yvette Mimieux, who was a 70s kind of blonde, you know, beautiful girl. And um, at a certain point, he said, you know, I think, and people were saying, well, she's not that interesting. At a certain point, Gloria said, um, he decided to make her more like, uh, whatever her name, Penny or something in, in American Graffiti. Um, the thing that uh, uh, Cindy Williams played. Right. Lori, I think her name was. Yeah. Lori. Yeah. He said, so instead of being a blonde, you know, whatever, he started looking for Lori type characters. And that's um, that's how she evolved into into a more feisty and kind of funny and and gutsy character. Also, George was very good as at, in in Star Wars. The casting was a, a process where he brought everybody in and everybody gave their opinions. One of the big things was he wanted. Let's see, which character was it that he wanted? Oh no, that, that was in Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, I forget there was somebody in in graffiti that he wanted to cast that everybody said, no, don't do that, you know. But anyway, it was, um, he was good at, at that time about, about listening to people, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that always impressed me was hearing, you know, that Marsha was like, no, the editing isn't as good, or let me tighten this up, or, you know, that's a bad idea, or Brian De Palma from what I understand, rewriting the opening crawl. It just, it feels like it was not necessarily something made by a committee, but something made by a bunch of friends looking out for one another. And it sounds like you're another, you know, duo of friends who are doing a really solid favor for your friend and just making the characters actually sound much more breathing and, and living beings. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we tried to do, and that's what everybody, I mean, at that screening where uh, Brian was there, and it was actually Brian and Jay Cox who, after we all went out to eat afterwards, and so they were fiddling around trying to make the crawl make a little more sense. But um, it was funny, that the screening was a disaster. You know, people, it was hard to look at. There was no special effects, and all the 
the rocket, the, all the starships and stuff were from World War II movies. And Marsha was crying and said, oh, my God, this is going to be like a long last love, you know, the Bogdanovich disaster. And, and I, I was saying, Marsha, Alan Ladd Jr., the head of the studio, is watching us and you can't cry. <laughs> you can't do that. It's not good. Yeah. And the only person was Steve. Steve, when we went to lunch afterwards, we were, I was driving. and I think Steve was in the car with uh, Jay again and uh, Gloria. And he was saying, I think it's going to make $100 million. And we all were looking at him like he was insane. No movie had done that in those days. Now it's a billion. No, Steve thought it was great. You know, he thought it was going to be wonderful. Did you guys ever get credit for that? Or has it always been an uncredited rewrite? Oh, no, it's uncredited. But we did wisely make our own deal when we decided to do it. I typed up a little a little one-page deal memo and quite a bit later when we finally gave it to our lawyer after the movie came out, he said, oh, my God. <laughs> he said, you don't need me. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. I, I, hope, I hope you're still getting checks from that. Well, we're very excited when everything is released in different formats. Right. You know, when it went from beta to VHS. To, to a laser disc to DVD. I just thought they come up with more and more formats. Well, now there's so many different versions they can release too. That's right. Plus, plus we're the only people in the world aside from Universal. And now who bought it? Disney that owns that owns any of the profits of that movie. Oh my God, that's hilarious. George has sold them all. Francis's was sold. Disney bought everything but us. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. So what are you doing these days? Well, I'm recovering from my wife's death and my partner of a long time. Um, we were married for 39 years. She died on our anniversary. Um, I tell people it's 30% longer that we were married. I used to joke because most people are apart at least eight hours a day and we weren't. Um, so we were married like 65 years or something. I've, I've been working on some scripts and I've been doing a lot of photo collecting. And uh, Gore and I last year wrote a book on our Japanese photography collection and about our adventures collecting. What was that like switching to writing a book after writing screenplays for so long? It wasn't too different. I mean, um, there wasn't dialogue in it so much. But, uh, you know, since it was sort of it, it was it was not a scholarly approach to our collection, and it was more about our adventures. It was fun. It, we had a good time uh, doing it. You said you're working on some scripts. Are you are you polishing, or are you working on original stuff? No original stuff. Although I think I should be working on long form television, which I think at the moment is often more interesting than movies. There's a lot of great stuff. There's so much stuff you can't watch it all anymore. The other the other funny thing that's happened is that it used to be film critics were sort of in the upper atmosphere of of, uh, of artistic reviews, and the television reviewers were at the bottom, and it's totally switched now. Everybody wants to be a TV critic. New York Times, everything. Did you write some uh, criticism in your day? I wrote, my friend from high school, Curtis Hansen, who um, we made that 50-minute film, when I was at SC Film School, he was my roommate. 
And we lived in a little apartment near where Philip Marlowe's office was supposed to be in on the Western and Santa Monica Boulevard. While I was at SC Film School, he had he was editing a magazine called Cinema, and his uncle had bought Cinema magazine, and so Curtis was the editor. One of my first reviews was um, Peter Bogdanovich's Target. I went with Curtis, and we drove out to the valley, and they were living in a farm, Peter and uh, his wife. And he loved the review because it was positive. But he he said, I hear you want to be a screenwriter. And I said, yeah, that's what I'd really like to do. And he said, well, you'll have to change your name. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, hike is like a very strange name. And I said, well, listen, Bogdanovich isn't, isn't the greatest name in the world. Yeah, so that was, uh, I wrote some stuff for Cinema Magazine. And, uh, and then after Curtis quit, I think Schrader did it for a little while. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that movie that you made with Curtis. What was that like, a 50-minute uh, film at that point? Well, it was a 50-minute silent, 16-millimeter thing. Because my father had a friend who had a 16-millimeter Bolex, so we got the camera. And we just made this kind of goofy, Fellini, Fellini-esque kind of thing about a, a guy whose job is so boring, he starts to fantasize. And uh, anyway, we shot it all over the valley. So it had a lot of valley things in it, sort of like... Um, uh, Messiah of Evil. Yeah, it was 50, 50 minutes long, and we made our parents and their friends pay to watch it. So um, that was that. And then, and then at, it was after that, of course, that Curtis was doing. I was in film school, and Curtis did Cinema Magazine. Well, Mister Hike, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific talking with you. Well, anything you need corrections or amplifications or whatever redos, let me know. and we were talking about Messiah of Evil. We have mentioned other films that this is reminiscent of, and I agree with you, Maitland, that there isn't a film that is exactly like this, that there are films that we might get echoes of. You mentioned Carnival of Souls, and as I was watching this, I really felt a Carnival of Souls vibe. I also got a... And it's been forever since I've seen this movie, and I really want to go back and revisit it. And it's pretty easy to do because it's been in the public domain forever. I want to go back and rewatch Dementia 13. I seem to remember that having a similar vibe as well. And it could have just been because of the weird production history of that movie. And things are just kind of thrown together at times, but... Maybe it's not. Um, maybe there are some similarities, but that whole idea, this atmospheric horror, it just plays so well with this. And, and yeah, I really, I, I went back and I rewatched Carnival of Souls tonight just to make sure that I was still feeling that vibe. And yeah, it really comes through. Yeah. There's two films that I think of with this one. One of them actually shared a, um, 
a costume designer, I think, was Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural, which is another Alice in Wonderland-ish kind of uh, tale of the uncanny with a um, a similarly uh, beautiful stylized color palette um, that came out uh, maybe a year or two after Messiah of Evil uh, with Rainbow Smith, Cheryl Smith as the uh, as the, as the main character, uh, Richard Blackburn's film. I think I think. Did, I think I actually saw it on the big screen at a at a, at a festival that Maitland programmed <laughs> um, for the New York uh, in um, Film Society of Lincoln Center. And then the um, the other thing, the big time reminds me of Messiah of Evil is Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which has uh, a similar um, framing device where it's uh, uh, the woman's voiceover. Um, it's the it's the story's the account of a traumatized survivor. <clears throat> And it's a, um, it's a town of, you know, full of conspiracy. The locals have strange scars on their, on their bodies that like kind of mark them as part of the conspiracy. Um, you have hippie drifters that are the prey for, uh, older small town Americans. Um, even the ending, you have the woman kind of, uh, off on the water while figures watch from the shore. The, um, there's an electronic score that w- that's kind of not a million miles removed from the uh, score of Messiah of Evil. So there's a lot, there's a lot of superficial connections. I think the big difference, and I, I know that you've covered Let's Go Jessica to Death on Projection Booth, Mike. Um, the big difference would be that um, you know Zora Lampert plays kind of a very present emotional protagonist, um, whereas Messiah of Evil, uh, it does have that kind of spacey, kind of dreamier, kind of you know more European art house kind of approach to to that kind of story. So the, the emotional identification might be a little different, but certainly anyone that is a big fan of Messiah of Evil that hasn't seen Let's Scare Jessica to Death, I think you're going to really like it if you have, if you catch up with it. Um, it has a lot of the same kind of sense of, of a nightmare logic, um, uh, early seventies feeling. Yeah. The moment of Anitra Ford in the truck with Benny, he would freak out anybody and she's just taking it in stride so well. And it's just like, you're sitting there as an audience member and you just have to kind of accept that this is happening and you have to accept that it is more of this strange logic because if I was there, I would be absolutely freaking out. And she just is like, okay, mm -hmm, yeah, I think I'll get out here. Wow. Your restraint is amazing. (laughs) You have to take that, that dream logic that you're taking, talking about, that has to be there when you watch this. All I can do is come back to dream logic, which is one of those things that um, I try to be very aware of my dreams because it, when I remember them, they are absolutely fascinating. I actually do keep paper near the bed so that when I wake up, I can write things down. And sometimes what I see astonishes me, to be honest. It's a shame I'm not a fiction writer because there's so much material there but it is absolutely fascinating to see the way your mind works when it's not working the way you want it to the way you make it work during your waking life because you need your mind to work in a certain way it can't always be meandering down these bizarre byways because that doesn't get stuff done and most of our waking lives are devoted to getting stuff done some of it's creative stuff. Some of it is, I have to defrost the freezer because it's a disaster area in there. But it's all stuff you need to do. And your subconscious mind is completely, not only useless, but actually an impediment to doing things like that. But your subconscious mind also just goes amazing places. And it's fascinating to see it. 
and if you have any kind of creative part of your makeup, it's a good thing to try and stay in touch with it. Going back to the H.P. Lovecraft stuff, it's funny because as I was watching this movie as well, the other movie that I was reminded of, I'm not sure if you guys have ever read Sutter Kane, but this film really reminds me of John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which is totally H.P. Lovecraft. But I'm remember, you know, I'm I'm seeing Messiah of Evil, and I just keep thinking of In the Mouth of Madness, and I'm just like the whole idea. I guess it's because Sam Neill being in the asylum and all of these different things, and you know, and the, and the Lovecraft just runs rampant through i mean it's basically that's what it is it's a lovecraft story um but yeah it was uh it was nice to be able to kind of connect some dots between the two because yeah you're you're right i mean this is messiah of evil is just drenched in lovecraft but then you have all of those other references that you were talking about i'm so glad bill that you brought the whole idea of the second coming poem to this because i i really think that that's such a major influence on this and and it really helps put the film into a new light as well i want to thank this week's co-host bill and maitland for being on the show bill what is happening in your world sir my show supporting characters is uh still been on a little bit of a hiatus but the uh the past episode you can find over at nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters including uh my episodes with maitland and with you mike and um you know uh actually you can hear a lot of people that have been on projection booth on on my show sam deegan cat ellinger heather train um other than that I, i've been recording some audio commentaries that haven't been announced yet so i can't talk about that um i i'm going to be on an upcoming episode of made for tv mayhem the uh the podcast with amanda reyes and dan budnick so i think that's the next thing i have uh on my plate that i can actually say and maitland what's happening with you well i, I think most recently i have a chapter in a book called sticking it to the man revolution and counterculture in pulp and popular fiction 1950 to 1980 that deals with the way in which popular culture, especially the counterculture, was reflected in gay adult novels of the 1970s. And as you know, gay adult novels of that era are a subject of great interest to me. That book is available for pre-order on Amazon and will be shipping in November. Did I see that you have another recent book, uh, a reprint of a gay classic? Yes, actually, through my company, 120 Days Books, I've been reprinting a number of vintage gay thrillers, including Maneater, uh, which is absolutely a fantastic serial killer thriller, uh, Gay Vampire and Vampire's Kiss, which are great vampire novels, Vampire's Kiss especially. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth, much like the Dark Stranger, take over the world. story to the sea. No one else is listening to me. The hidden truth clear in my mind. Soon all alone I will not find. Somehow, somewhere, someone may hear me.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.